0: episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Allo Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California. Created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared and Bob to create a rehab that treats addicts and alcoholics with compassion and connection rather than control, which is critical. They treat co-occurring mental health disorders and have decades and decades and decades of treating addiction. Their detox is a comfortable one which is so important if you're kicking heroin or coke or alcohol or benzos. A comfortable detox is number one in my book. They have amenities you wouldn't believe, sound bath meditation, the spiritual sweat lodge, equine therapy, surfing, probably a ton of other stuff too. If you're fucked and you need a place to go and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I highly recommend going to (laughs) Alan. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave. And this, of course, is the Patreon bonus episode. And I swore to you that every month, if you paid 10 bucks, there would be an extra dopey episode for you. And it is the last night of the month. And I'm not going to be a fucking welcher. I'm not going to be a liar. If I say there's going to be an extra dopey For $10 subscribers, you guys are going to get that fucking shit a month before everybody else. So here it is. And uh, before we get into it, I just want to say how sad that fucking song on the front is. I'm, like, going to fucking break down over here. Um, Oh, man. I remember when we got it, me and Chris were doing one of our first call to actions with the Dopey Nation, which was the Dopey Nation theme song challenge and I really think that we got this song while we were doing a show and we stopped the show and we played it on the show and uh every time I hear the song it just it's got soul it gives me the feeling you know um I'm not sure it's by one of two people in my mind I always attributed I attributed the song to uh A dopey superfan who I haven't heard from in years, which, of course, is the great um, Joey Pepper or Joey Pipar, as I sometimes pronounce his name. I don't know what happened to Joey. I have his email. I should write him. I don't think he pays for Patreon. Joey, if you're listening, throw a shout. And if it is not Joey Pepper, and Joey Pepper was a classic early dopey fan because – At first, he would put me down, and I think I freaked out about it on the show. And then he switched sides, and he started putting Chris down. And I always – it was always so funny. You know, I took it really personally, and then I loved rubbing Chris's face in it when Joey Pepper put Chris down. Um, So I wonder what – and Joey Pepper sent me uh, Dopey Stickers decals. I think he works in a decal company, and he predated Matt – Wiedemeyer Carroll's decals, and I put some huge decals around Manhattan when he sent them to me. So I hope Joey is well. And if it is not Joey, it was done by a guy called Phil. That's all I remember, because I remember in the episode me and Chris saying, Phil this and Phil that. But so if you, if anyone knows who this is, or if you made this, please send in a voicemail or an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. It definitely makes me want to reinstitute the Dopey theme song challenge, but fuck it. I mean, if you guys are musicians and you can put together a Dopey theme song, I would love that. Um, now for the hardcore Dopey Patreon members, last night we did the Dopey Patreon Zoom and it was just a joy. It was a joy to be with you guys. And afterwards, it was great. We, we did this whole, uh, we did a new take on the, on the game show with this app called Cahoots which is very professional, and you kind of answer questions on your phone. And this woman, Katie, set the whole thing up, and she did an amazing job. And you guys should come. I mean, if you guys are Dopey Patreon people, you should come to the Zoom. It was a lot of fun. And afterwards, I went to the Dopey Nation after-party Zoom, and it was the first time I went to a regular Dopey Zoom, and it was so sweet, and um, it was so cool, and it was very, very nice. And uh, Dopey superfan and scribe David Masculani asked me, like, how I keep it going, like, as though it's a burden to keep Dopey going, and which is funny to me because it's almost as though people think I make the show for you guys, uh, like some selfless act, when in reality I totally make it for myself uh, because I like to. I, I just love making the show so it is not a burden it's a it's a great joy and again the side effect of my great joy is that you guys enjoy it if it was a if it, if i was, i don't think i could do it if i was doing it for somebody else because i'm such a self-centered uh, fuck but i just want to let you guys know that i appreciate everybody who's in the patreon thing because it makes my life so much easier and i love to see you guys at the at the patreon zoom and i'm going to try to go to more of the Dopey nation zooms Because the Dopey Nation is totally this amazing echo of Dopey. It's like, and and that's the coolest thing. You guys are doing your own thing, but it's definitely born in what me and Chris started, and I'm very, 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 uh, I don't know. It makes me happy. I'm enamored by that shit. It does make me super happy, though, that you guys love the show. That's thrilling for me. And it is incredibly hard work that sometimes could be construed as burdenous. But it is not a burden. It is a... A grinding of love. And I get crazy joy, or as my father would say, naches, which is Yiddish for pride. And I get crazy pride and joy from you guys loving the show. And it is a beautiful, harmonious relationship that I think we have for the most part, unless you're leaving a shitty review or talking shit about me someplace that I read or don't read. So besides that, it is incredibly harmonious, and it makes me incredibly happy to make the show and, uh, and still exist in the Dopey Nation. So I think that's enough schmaltzing it up for you guys, and now it's time to get to the guest. And this week's guest I'm very excited about. Um, I'm going to give credit to Dopey Nation, hardcore fan, the great Englishman James G. And James had suggested this guy. And I, I have to say that I had the idea also, but James really brought it home. And the guy is a a, a comic from New York City. He's from Staten Island, but we're not going to hold that against him. He His name is Mike Bochetti. His claim to fame is that he has worked with dopey uh, obsession and my white whale Artie Lang for years. He was the announcer on the old Artie Lang show and now he was also the co-host on Artie's last podcast which is Artie's Halfway House. The thing about Mike Bochetti is he's an alcoholic in recovery. He's got a ton of time and I wanted to hear a little bit about his, uh, his life and it was uh, awesome to talk to him. He's a sweet, sweet man and here we go. Mike Bochetti. So I'm very excited. I, I've actually been listening to the next. I, I discovered our next guest through uh, Artie Lang's podcast, Halfway House. It's Artie Lang's co-host. His name is Mike Buschetti, longtime comic in New York and from Staten Island. Welcome to Dopey.
1: Hi Dave. First of all, thank you for having me on your show. And I, I know you have a lot of great people on here. I like doing my research on people before I do stuff. And it was you had you had a bunch of really well, people, a lot of people are well more known than Nick. <laughs> yeah, you know? Well, I, I love that.
0: I appreciate that. So you did your your you did your uh, your homework on dopey, and you found out the good and the bad and the not so good, right?
1: Yeah. Well, you know what, Dave? Life is life is good, bad, and in between. And you just gotta. The thing is, you know what? You got to know what you can change and what you can't, and and you know, and realize the difference because when you can fix, you can fix. When you can't, you just gotta you know
0: adjust to it right you live with it like the serenity prayer kind of thing like life on life's terms yeah um and uh you know when i have been uh, i've been kind of borderline obsessed with artie because i used to get high and listen to the howard stern show um and then when we started doing dopey a lot of it was based on artie's material like when he would get high and tell the most fucked up things he did so that's kind of like how we started the show it was inspired by that stuff and then when i saw artie did a show called sober house or halfway house i wanted to to see what he was doing and then i heard you and you've been sober for how long 26 years Uh,
1: out of 24 years on uh, saint patrick's day from alcohol yeah,
0: it's incredible. Well, do, do you don't use drugs, do you?
1: No, I, ne- I never really, like... The only worst thing I ever did was smoke pot when I was young. I never really got into hard drugs because I was terrified of them.
0: Right, but still, I mean, you were... Did Artie pick you to be on the show because you knew what sobriety was, or was it because he loved the way you talked from your announcer days from the Artie Lang show?
1: I think it was just that we had a good chemistry together, and I think that was it he also knew it. i was sober as well but i think it was a mixture of both actually dave i think it was a combination of both of those
0: things right um and um you know i hope you guys get back with that show i thought it was awesome i thought it was just so oh, cool to, to hear everybody's stories and i know that uh you know i always just have a good thought for Artie. whatever he's doing he's doing um how's he doing is he all right
1: I, you know what, I've been hearing he's been doing good. I haven't really had any contact with him since last year, but I heard some other people know him that he's, he's doing really well at her and he's still sober, which is great, thank God. I think, you know what it is, this whole epidemic just knocked everybody off their feet and it's still horrible. I, I just wish to God we would just, everybody would get that vaccine, wear that mask, and then we can, you know, have one big celebration when this is over.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I dream that it will be like that, that the contrast of everybody not being stuck at home is going to be so joyful and so great. So I look forward to that, too. And you're in Staten Island now. Oh, yeah. And um, when did you realize that like we'll go way back, like what made you realize that you needed to get sober or that you wanted to get sober?
1: Oh, it was one event that was really horrible. I started drinking at 14 years old. And the sick thing is that the first time I had beer, I didn't even like the taste of it. You know what I mean? I drank, the first time I drank was uh, Halloween night, 1975. That's how far back it goes. And somebody gave me a quarter Budweiser, right? I didn't even like the taste of it, but everybody was drinking, my friends my age. And they were, like, drinking it down. And they were, like, looking at me, like, I, you know, it's peer pressure. And I was, like, I didn't even like it. Again, for some reason, I, I tried it again, and I just liked it, and I started drinking it. And it was I, it was horrible because it ruined my early life because, Dave, I would cut out from school instead of going to high school. I would sit in people's houses. They were my age. We'd all cut from school and be drunk by, like, 11, 12 in the morning. It was horrible.
0: Right. So, and when did it when did it start happening? Like alcoholically, like you tried it when you were fourteen. How soon after were you just drinking all day?
1: Within a year, right? But maybe, maybe within a year or so. Yeah, about a year later. It's horrible because instead of doing my homework and going to school and be doing the right thing, i cut out with other people. You know, had like the same thing as me. we drinking drinking at houses. It was horrible. We'd like you know, be drunk by like twelve or one in the afternoon instead of doing the right thing. I mean, you know, at the time you thought it was all cool and fun and, you know, till you realize it wasn't
0: And when did when did it come to the point where you're like, I have to get sober?
1: Oh, it took many years, Dave. I mean that was fifteen. I was I drank like that for another fifteen solid years at least. What stopped me was I was in my early 30s. I was like 31 actually, I think, right? Yeah, 31. Uh, this is 1992. I was hanging out with people that weren't really, that weren't my friends or I thought they were my friends, but they were also addicted too, but they were worse because they were drinking, They and they were basing cocaine in their mother's basement, which is horrible, right? And they, you know, a lot of trouble and stuff. And one night I drank, I swear to God, it had to be a half a gallon of Jack Daniels in under an hour. Right? Oh, my God. And I was laying in bed. I started throwing up and throwing up. Like, I kept thinking of all the people that were young like that. that you know what I mean? That Like, I was thinking of Jimi Hendrix dying like that. And other people was horrible. I just could, not I kept praying, please don't let my, you know what I mean? And it was horrible. And that was like 92. But the sad thing is, Dave, you think that would have stopped me, idiot that I was? i got sober the next day and i still
0: drank a little more another five years no i get it i mean i was on heroin for a million years and i couldn't stop and every time i'd stop i would start up again so you don't have to say that you were an idiot i i totally understand um i've been like listening to the, the your podcast with Artie, and you're talking about uh the wild days in manhattan um did you when did you start doing comedy
1: well I'm gonna ask you how if you mind me asking you, right? How old are you? I'll I'll be sixty in a couple of months. Uh I'm forty six. I'll
0: be forty seven in okay. June.
1: And, I, so and I, I we're close to the same time period. But, yeah. but we're close. So you I mean you grew up in New York when it was a hellhole too.
0: Yes, yes, I did. I grew up before I grew up before Chelsea was gay. I grew up when Chelsea was still tough. Wow. You know?
1: Oh, like, like my grandfather. He grew up like um, in the Hell's Kitchen in the years ago. When it was out, it was like, like rough. The city was, you know, as you know, we both grew up in, you know, I lived in St. when but I came into the city. But the thing is, it was a war zone for generations. I mean, the whole city was corrupt, and the mayorship, and the governors, and everybody, and it's like, it was like, you know, Baltimore, Maryland. It was horrible for years.
0: No, I mean, I grew up right, right by, uh kind of where the whores were all on 10th avenue and 11th avenue and there were there were still drug spots and stores and and it was damn i mean it was hard to be a little kid in manhattan especially a white kid in manhattan because i would get jumped all the time so like i know what you're oh, talking about yeah definitely definitely
1: you know what is a bad area today It still is it still isn't any better really but right i Madison Square go out about like 8th avenue over it's kind of a shady area still i think
0: yeah well that's where i grew up i grew up on 27th street so like it was a few blocks north of of where I grew up, but yeah, it's still like that. It, it that's one place that's kind of unchanged. All those places on Eighth Avenue, right? Um, well,
1: but, even Twenty Ninth Street by Cemetery Avenue isn't that great. I
0: don't think. No, no, I know what you're talking about, and still they, that's one of the oldest bars is still there on the on Ninth Avenue and Twenty Ninth Street. That Billy's Bar. Uh, oh yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That's an old school New York City bar um okay. so so when did you start doing comedy
1: i originally started back in 89 1989 i did it for like six months but i was so delusional i was i was 28 i had no idea at all dave how the business ran and i thought in the first year i'd be selling the garden now like Andrew lights clay <laughs> you know, right right no idea how business works right but i got kind of frustrated fast and i stopped Then I came back in 1992, and he hasn't ever since. But it's funny to me because I actually, he's one of my favorite comics on the planet. I love him. I actually did get to meet him a couple of times, a bunch of times, and I kind of became a friend to him in a way. Andrew Dice Clay, I love him.
0: Yeah, I I waited on him at Katz's once. It was a highlight of my life.
1: Was he nice? He was very—he's very cool.
0: He was super cool. He was super fun, and 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 he was nice. It, it was awesome. He was exactly the way you expected him to be. He was an old he's school a, guy, he's a gentleman. Yeah, yeah.
1: He really is a cool guy because you know it's funny. You know, people you know don't realize Dave Dice is just a character. There's a big difference between Andrew Rice Clay and Andrew Silverstein for sure
0: right 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 absolutely um when you started though that was before you got sober was that challenging would you find yourself drinking a lot when you were performing like what was that like
1: well you know what's crazy dave i was drinking then you know in those days in 89 and i never went on stage drunk because i was afraid to because i wanted to keep my wits about me right I mean, I did drink a little bit in the early '90s when I did comedy, but I never got drunk. Maybe I had a drink or two, like, but not get wasted. And I did get wasted one time at a comedy club. One of the last times I drank got really wasted was back in 1996, and it was horrible because I got—I I was so drunk I was like falling down drunk, and I had—I traveled all the way back home like that by myself, which is dangerous in the city. I'm like, whoa, never again.
0: Right. Um, I watched the movie, the Who is Mike Buschetti documentary, which has some like real huge legends of New York City comedy like Colin Quinn and Artie and uh, Bill Burr and all these people. And they love you and they love your offbeat sensibility. Do you think that your 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 act became more refined once you got sober or, or was it was it was it similar when you were still out there?
1: Um, you know what, David It, it kind of changed when I, when I did get sober because when I was drinking in those days, I was very filthy and over-the-top. Like, I loved, like I said, I love Andrew Dice Clay. In fact, it's so funny because I wish I had pictures of tape of it. I was a lot thinner. I was younger. I was smoked chain-smoking cigarettes, which I stopped smoking over 20 years ago. And I was cursing my ass off like dice, heckling woman. It was horrible because I was a miniature version of him. Then... You know, I I uh, found myself and I, I started becoming myself more. Then when I stopped drinking I really found myself.
0: Right. And did you get um and, and like what were the things that like you said that you would lie in bed and think about, you know, you're around all the people who were smoking the coke and like you were thinking about the people who had died. And like, but what was it? What was it that pushed you into it? Like, was there anything personal that happened or what made you realize that you needed to, to start over?
1: I just got tired of it, you know, for a while, because, you know, like I said, it took me another five years after I had to stop. I just got tired of it. I got older. And I was like 36 when I stopped. I started, you know, I always had, I got so drunk. I didn't just drink to have a couple of drinks, like be sociable. I drank to get shit-faced and get out of control. That was the goal, which is, you know, all the time in those days. Yeah. Especially when I was younger. And I had always had a hard time with bad hangovers. I had some two-day hangovers, not even one day, two. And I was 36 when I stopped. And I was like, whoa, I'm, you know, not old, but I'm like not fifteen anymore doing this, I was like i can't take this physically either and, and mentally and emotionally and and I just picked St. Patrick's Day because that's one of the worst drinking days of the year to stop right
0: absolutely uh, did you go to did you go to twelve step meetings or anything, or how did you do it?
1: Oh no, I was very, very blessed Dave because my dad was in recovery. He was an alcoholic. He went to Yes, right? He loved the program. Now, don't get me wrong, right? I'm not a program group kind of guy because, you know, some people it helps and God bless them that it does. This helps for them, you know, when I can, you know, get to a group together. But I never did it because I just felt like I'd been stuck around that environment all the time. and I, I had to, like, you know, cut myself off from it and just do it on my own, you know, which is like tough but you know everybody finds a way to do it their own way like i said programs are great it helps a lot of people i think it's wonderful but i was never that kind of guy i just stopped and just never looked back that's crazy was very blessed
0: see i could never do it i could never just stop in fact, I would try to stop all the time, and I always failed. And I never wanted to say like that I was a program kind of person because I never saw myself that way. And yet, in the end, I needed it. I needed the help. You know what I mean? I needed structure and I needed instructions. Um,
1: well, I also have, you know, I, well, I one thing I did need therapy for though. I have major OCD, and I, I have it for many years, and I, I but I've been. And recovered with it for like, I haven't had an episode of OCD, uh, severe one, in fifteen years now.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, do you you think that the OCD, uh, do you think that the alcoholism uh, messed with the OCD at all? Did they interact?
1: Oh yeah. Oh, it totally was horrible because when I got OCD, I was twenty six, back in nineteen eighty seven. Right, I started getting it like December eighty seven, and I thought, you know alcohol would take it away to self-medicate right but what people don't realize is that booze or drugs you know enhance mental illness they make it even worse they bring it out even more because you know it brings it out even more it's you know so i was like it was i thought it would be a cure all, drinking it away but it didn't help it, made it 10 times worse it might even add it though i think it did
0: Well, that's the funny thing. It's like you you get high or you drink or whatever in order to get out of yourself, like you said. You know, you said to get shit-faced or to get crazy. I did it just to not think. And then you think you're not going to think, but it winds up leaving you with all this other misery to think about. And I bet it does similar shit with the OCD.
1: Oh, yeah. No, it'll make it worse because – but the thing is, you know, Dave, I had a lot of vices. I had drinking. Like I said, I – I still, eat-wise, you know, eat I'm good with my food now, but, but I also smoke cigarettes. For, I started smoking at 12. I stopped smoking uh, back in 1998.
0: December, wow, you started like smoking cigarettes years, when now. you were 12. That's serious. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the funniest bits that I, I heard on, uh, on the Halfway House with Artie was uh, the story of the East Village and whoring it up with buffalo annie is that a true story
1: oh yeah 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 that definitely is a true story because i mean you know from living in the city how like how how like you know hookers were run rampant in those days like street hookers or like you know hookah you know whole houses you could find you just had to know the right people to get in you know what i mean right but like you said but otherwise you would find hookers. At, from Delancey Street all the way to Harlem and back. You know, in those days on the streets and everything—they were all over the place. Now, you know, it's not like that as much as it used to be. I don't think it. You know what I mean? And, and yeah, that's definitely a true story because—and it was a scary place because, you know, East Village was a horrible place too in those days.
0: Sure, it was—it was tons of drugs on every block. It was dangerous. He,
1: south of the city?
0: Oh, it still they is it Still is, you I know,
1: think, I think Alphabet City is kind of sketchy, still,
0: definitely because of the project that's there on Avenue D. You know, it has to be. I don't know what it would take to change that. And we always used to to talk about that at Katz's, you know, because I came to Katz's when gen- gentrification was totally in effect. And I would, and I would, I worked at Katz's uh when I was a kid, also, like, uh in in 96 or 97 right and i lived on uh, on ludlow street and uh, there were oh, nice. there were heroin dealers in the building you know that that ran the, the heroin out of the lobby they would keep it in the stairwell but they wouldn't fuck with the people that lived in the building it was a different world you know it was like what oh, you're yeah. talking about and i'm sure it was the same thing with the with the brothels and whorehouses around too
1: Oh, because, you know why? Because all oh, gangsters own those places. You know what I mean? All, like, gangsters on those places, and you, you really had to watch your piece of because not only that, like you said, it's funny you mentioned about an area of my catches because, like, I remember the first time I ever went to catches was in the early 80s with my friend from Staten Island. His family knew about it for years because they were from the city, from the Lower East Side. They lived there, right? They knew about it forever. And the first time I went to catches was back in 83 right? And Dave is just how, just how long ago this was. Um, what do you call it? A, a pastrami sandwich of catches and a dill pickle, which I love, and a celery cream soda. It was $4.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know how much it is now, Mike? It's like, it's like it's for that, like for a, it's like 30 bucks. Yeah. It's, bucks? it's a little bit less oh. than 30 bucks. Yes.
1: Anyway, keep going. Keep well, going. It, but the, but the funny thing is, we were talking earlier. I don't know if a lot of people I've seen in New York ever had celery cream soda, but it's phenomenal.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely.
1: Dr. Brown's is great soda for the celery. And, but that tickle, it's like, but the thing is, and you know what's funny? Like, the first time I went there my friend said, tip the counter guys, because they'll, they'll really make you a great sandwich even better than it normally gets." And I remember we're putting, like, $2 tip in the counter guys thing, Dave, he made me a sandwich that I could eat for four days straight. It was So I couldn't even, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, you work to how, how great the food is and how, you know, it's incredible.
0: Well, the funny thing is, I mean, like that was something that changed the way the food is still the same. You know, everything is still the same except the sandwiches are smaller and the price is more expensive, which is a joke I make, but it's true. But that's also the nature of the city. You know, everything is more expensive and you get less of everything. But the thing I was going to say was I remember when I came back, I came back in 2008, okay? My mother uh, was dying and I moved back to New York from California. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, And uh, I remember, though, every day I would think about the old days of the city and how everything was changing around Katz's. And I would say to people, well, what do you think it would take to go back to those days you know and I would imagine like a meteor hitting or a flood or terrorism and I never thought of something like COVID um, because because oh yeah. everything is shutting down do you think that the city is going to get more wild again with this
1: I don't you know what I think it's going to level off once this COVID's over because then I think people are going to come back once the COVID's over and it's going to level back to what it was and be normal again because I was going to ask you the, there was another place by catches right? that I went to that was really scary years ago. It was a landmark place. I don't know if you ever been to me yourself called Lasky's Lounge. Sure, 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 sure. Of course. My Lasky's Lounge. I went in there, Dave, a couple of times. I went to, with some friends and, Dave, I did premonitions and vibes and spiritual stuff. I, it was eerie in that place. I felt like a bad vibe in that place.
0: I feel like wasn't there comedy there years ago?
1: Yeah, it definitely was. But the thing is, I mean, you walked in there, it was like he felt like he was, I mean, you know, I don't know if he ever killed anybody himself, but I'm sure he had to beat people up early on. Ryan Alasky was, was a brilliant man, you know, as a as a money guy. I don't know if he was, he probably had to be a tough guy, too, at one time. But I mean, you know, he was a brilliant financial mind, but he probably had to be a tough guy as well, I'm sure.
0: No, I think he was definitely one of these tough guys. When you were coming up in the early '90s, and you had you'd basically just gotten sober, but you're working the comedy circuit. What was the scene like then?
1: Oh, it was much different because you know what? Now we have all these things. You say we have TikTok, we have Twitter, we have Facebook. You know all these apps and stuff, right? It's sad because somebody can go on on Twitter now, on TikTok. Like you know YouTube, especially make a video that's like two seconds, that's like two minutes long, get you know twenty million views, and all of a sudden people will all but put them in stuff, get them, you know what I mean? And they'll try to do comedy, and, they, and they're not funny people, really yet, or they're not whatever. And the thing is, and then you got some guys that want to you know Julia, but can't even get an infomercial, you know what I mean? Right, right,
0: it's just
1: insane. It, it's it's you know, it's insane, but it, 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 that's how much it changed. Not only that, it's like it was a lot different because when I started in the early 90s, right, there was no internet. We had to just go to comedy clubs. Hopefully they would put us up and just... And the audience was a lot different too, Dave. New York was still kind of a rough place at that time. And then, you know, especially it would you know... The audience were rowdy. They were closer to my age than when I was in my thirties. They were closer to my age. They were rowdy and the shows would be the city would stay open much later too. All night. Now, I remember going to comedy clubs at like two, three in the morning. Now they close earlier. And it's like, you know, things changed and the, you know, and, and the thing is there was no internet. There were less people doing it. And it and but the thing is you had to work extremely hard to get get, get anything. Now it's like they didn't even care, like industry wise, agents now, instead of like you know being how good you are, they're like, How many Twitter followers do you have? Which is more important to them. And, and you know what, but as, as we both know, like okay, somebody could have 200,000 Twitter followers, but how many of them are real people that are their fans? You right, I mean? because right. it's all smoke and mirrors. Because you could have, Dave, I had like I think, like, 30,000 Twitter followers, right, at one time. And the thing is, but that doesn't mean 20,000 people are going to come to see me to go out. People won't realize that. You know what I mean? It's, you know, a lot of those people are troll accounts. Some are real people. Some are inactive. It's like all smoke and mirrors, really.
0: No, it's the end of the world. I mean, like, I look at, I, I find myself looking at social media more and more and feeling worse and worse. Uh, like it Like it, it sucks my soul. And I also look at it like addictively, like I used to smoke. Oh, yeah. Or, or I used to do drugs. I look at social media like it's going to make me feel better, and it doesn't.
1: No, it's horrible, Dave. It's like instead of talking to people, people are facing their phones all day. It's horrible because, Dave, we're from the same generation. Anybody under 30 – don't know how to fill out a job application now or look you in the
0: eye even it's up to you. Well they don't even want to like they, they want but it's you know, they do things in a different in a different style. It, it's crazy. When you came up Well when you came up who did you generation co- is
1: different
0: though. Right, you know? exactly. Exactly. Like I know that the generation ahead of us, ahead of me, like thought I, I I didn't work hard enough and I was you know and I was
1: a slacker
0: and I was this I mean, and that, you. you know
1: it's, they do. It's like Dave hey, if you didn't work eighty hours a week and brought home a lot of bacon, they would look to you like you were a loser that by now.
0: It's funny. It's funny the way that happens, and it's funny the way it's like so many people miss so many things in New York, right? Like things that have Dave, like, you're a great interviewer. This is fun. Oh, thank you. Um, you know how like Sammy's Romanian just closed? Did you hear that? oh yeah yeah they closed i never I, I never went there they closed that they closed now, they closed so many places and uh but then you wonder how many places had closed at another time and you never got to see it it's the way that time just rolls on right mike no
1: you're right because they but they had a lot more deli years ago in the city than
0: now oh yeah it was a whole i think there were a lot more it's because jews weren't so health conscious and and I think that changed. There used to be t- like twenty delis uh, in the East oh, Village.
1: Yeah, Second Avenue Deli sausages. You can we can go on and on. They've been places all day. I know it. it's like, and all phenomenal. And now it's like, you know, like you said, it's, you know, now they pastrami sandwiches is like poison. You know what I mean? And it's really good if they if pay attention. You know what? Well, energy moderation can be bad
0: no no i i I totally hear you tell us about who you came up with in the 90s like who were the names who was good what was it like like how would you fight for spots and what was the comedy scene like then
1: it was you know probably that alan king should have bested an article in the early 90s when i started he goes you know he goes sadly he said about all the people in this business he goes only two percent I was going to get to the top of the ladder. You know what I mean? And, and that 1% will be like working actors or comics. And the other percent will be super famous, right? Okay, people I started with, I started with an army of people, right? Uh, some of them aren't even in this anymore. They dropped out years ago because it's such a, you know, from being in TV and stuff, what a brutal business it can be. Yeah. You know what I mean? It can be really brutal. And then just and stuff and everything else. But, uh, basically okay some of the people that i you know started with became super successful and they're, they're all good guys most of the people i started with nobody that i started with is an idiot you know what i mean i've met all these people i didn't start with that like haven't even done half much some of these guys like i'll give you a good example okay some of the people i started with and they may have started maybe a year or so before me were jim gaffigan yeah right what do you call it? Uh, Judah Freelander. Yeah. Who's a great close friend of me. What do you call it? Uh, Zach Galifianakis. He started around the same time I did. What do you call it? Uh, Lisa Lampinelli. Yeah. Um, Bill, Billy Burr, who, I, who started with me. Uh, Joey Coco Diaz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think who else. And that Those are people I can just basically name. Um Audie, Audie, Audie started around the same time I did, but the weird thing about that with him is I never met him because he was still in comedy a couple of years. I heard of his name, you know, but he got on that TV and moved to LA, and I, I never met him till like into the early two thousands. That's when I met him because, but he was around the same time I was, but we just you know were in different circles, and he got on TV and moved to LA, so I never got to meet him until ten years, ten or so years later after that,
0: you know so when you guys finally met did you hit it off right away
1: it was weird how i met audi because i was doing comedy for 11 years right then the first season of last comic standing came along and uh what do you call it my friend ross mark he was one of the producers on the show he i knew him for for like you know like eight nine years already you know he worked with me years ago i went out to the improv in l.a that's how he originally booked the show and they called me to audition. Okay, I got on the first I got on the seven, I got on the New York semifinals in two thousand three, right? I didn't get to the next round to go to Vegas and get to the house, right? But what was weird was okay, I was it was so crazy, Dave, because twenty million people watch that show because it was a prime time. You know what I mean? This is before the net and everything. Before, you know, Facebook it's Twitter is still a huge thing. Totally. Twenty thousand people sleep the first season, right? So I was doing a show, at a, just a regular show. About a month later, after the show had at uh, a bar in the city called Jack Dempsey's on for, uh, by the garden, right. Uh-huh. So as it turns out, uh, my friend my friend Sal, who I related to a friend from the Howard Stern show, Sal, stockbroker, was there at the time, right. He was new to comedy, right now. I had I didn't listen to Howard for a while, so I had no idea who Sal was right no clue right he was on in the show he came over to me and goes dude i seen you a west comics he goes i'm good friends with john melinda with john you know he toured through comedy i'm gonna get in touch with him and you know we should you should talk with us and i'm like i was thinking that you know, because you know at first i was like you know for 11 years i heard all kinds of bullshit cur- sorry curse all kinds of nonsense no people, curse right? as
0: much as you want cursing is legal okay, totally please feel okay. feel fucking fact, free Mike.
1: Okay, okay, thanks. I heard all kinds of bullshit and nonsense from the years of people. You know, people always like, we'll do this, we'll do that. You know, this, you know, from being in this, how much, how much, how much talk is cheap in this. Some people like to talk a new game a lot, you know, right? Sure. So at first, I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, right? So the next day, Sal called me up. I go, who is this? He goes, it's Sal. He goes, you think I was going to call you. Did, did I, right? I was like, no. And and then he goes, look, I talked to John Melendez. He wants to come down to see you do comedy before he tours because, you know, it was only a couple minutes you were on the show. And he goes, okay. So a couple weeks later, I set it up with John. It's so weird because John came down to see me uh, a couple of weeks later. He just got done seeing John Rivers. How crazy is that? He was good friends with her. He wanted to see how to come to see me. Okay, now, I didn't. At the time, John had long hair. I was a fan of his, you know, Howard, because, you know, for years, he had long hair at the time, you know, and everything. But but, this time, he had a short haircut and everything. So I didn't even recognize him, yeah. right? he came over to me. He goes, dude, you were hysterical. And, and, and like Sally said, no, I'll call you. And at first, I was like, yeah, you know, whatever. Right? And then about a week later, my mom goes, someone named Stutter and John called for you in the house. I'm like, what? So, you know, he has to call him back, right? And now, I, I, when I first met him and, him especially, I was very laid back and very shy because, you know, people knew John forever. He was a celebrity on Howard. And yeah, he, yeah. You know, people know him, right? It was kind of intimidating at first to be a friend with him because, you know why? It, it was just, I wasn't used to having people with were celebrities as friends, you know what I mean? It's very awkward, right, at first. Really, like, intimidating. Then he told me one day, he goes, look. I can see you nervous. He goes, there's no need to be. He goes, we like you. You know, you're a friend to me. And he goes, and he goes, and I go, you know what? But there's nothing I can do for you. I'm not famous like you guys are. He goes, I don't care about that. He goes, you're a good guy and you're a friend, and I respect your work and your talent. I don't care. Right. And then, you know, he was really good to me. And him and so, uh, John even flew me out to L.A. to audition for The Tonight Show on his own money.
0: See, I never I never would have I never would have guessed that John was such a good guy. You're opening my eyes. He's a great here. guy. Okay. Keep going.
1: He he really is an incredible part. People don't know him until you know him really, right? Right. And so what happened was his homemade audience it was so crazy. We did a show, what do you call it, 2003 in December. It was one of the worst snowstorms ever that, that year, right? We did a show down in Philly, which is notoriously a horrible place for comedy audiences. they br- the brutalest people on the planet, almost, right? Yeah. And this, this was the lineup of the show. That's the first time I met Artie. It was myself, John, Sal, Artie, Nick DiPaolo, and the late, great Otto and George was on the show. Almost, okay. Right? Yeah. We drove. Listen to this, Dave. And, you know, Philly's only like an hour and a half away by, you know, by maybe two hours by car. It took us four and a half to five hours to get there. The snowstorm was so bad, right? And this is the first time I met, you know. And we we get there, and I get on stage. And they start heckling with me, and I turned to Billy with that night. And, and Billy, and Arnie seen that. And he was laughing his butt off, and that's how I became friends with him. He goes, "Look, here's my my number." You know, stay in touch with me and everything. And then, you know, I would talk to Artie once in a while, and, and you know, we, we stayed friends over the years. Then in two thousand uh, twelve, when him and Nick had that TV show, yeah, he, I never bought him. To, I never asked my friends for anything, Dave. I never asked anybody famous for anything. They put me in stuff in their own thing because I liked them as people first. And you know, if you can, friends can help you just they will. There's no need to hassle people. You know what I mean, right? So Artie called me up a couple of days before the show started and he goes, he goes, Look, me and Nick can have our own T V show on every night, Monday to Friday. We we wanna hire you as our announcer. I'm like, What? You know what I mean? And you know, and then they tested me out and it worked out. And then we were on T V together for a couple of years and then, you know, things happened and he, you know, got his thing. But he's a wonderful guy. We've had our differences in the past, I'll be honest with you, because like to break chops sometimes you know so did i but you know i felt, felt, felt like, it was like too much you know we had our differences like i said but sometimes a great some,
0: sometimes he seemed too mean to you on that show and you know i'm kind of a dick like i can be a dick to my co-hosts because it's funny because you think it's funny but i i remember like i was like no you're being too mean to mike uh but I, I figured you guys get along, and I figured it was mostly just shtick. But I, you know, it, it could be tough, right, to have somebody who oh, breaks. Oh, it could be tough. Yeah, I get it can that. Could
1: be too tough because, like, I'll give you a good example. Like right now, I'm having so much fun with you, right? It's just cool because you're a great host, and this is enjoyable, and we both have, you know, similar circumstances with various things that happen to us. And the thing is, but like, you know, like some radio shows you go on, or shows, you know. I don't believe in bullying. I believe in just having good content.
0: Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, but that's like, that takes, you know, work. I mean, I even talked to Artie about that. Like, he didn't understand that he was good at vibing. He thought he needed to make jokes all the time, but he's great at vibing. You know what I mean?
1: He no, would, he you don't would not have to be a joke machine. No, it, because, you, like you said, you've got to have good interview skills like you do and have good content, both.
0: Well, that's you know I, I think that's I think that you guys will come back, and I think that when he gets a little more time, he'll get it. You know, he'll get his head on straight. I have faith in that.
1: Oh no, he got, he definitely will because he's great at what he does, right? I think it's just a matter of like, you know, you don't have to heckle people all day long to be funny. You know what I mean? It could just happen. And he, I mean, I don't think he he never I mean he never really knew that he was being mean to me. You know what I mean? and, and the thing is, I think you know he. Might have been using when he was on television. I don't know if he was when he was on television. I really don't know because of course the thing is, you know, I mean, it's hard because addicts, as we know, can hide from people really well.
0: Well, I didn't know that Chris was using, and I told—I mean, I, I told you before we started that like the last time I saw Chris alive was when we went to Artie's. And it turned out they were both high, but I was just so focused on making the show as good as possible. I just took them for their word because I wasn't going to be like, they're high. I didn't know. And I just figured they weren't because they told me they weren't. You know what I'm saying?
1: It's horrible because I've had, you know, cousins and family members die were under 30. And you know what's crazy about it? They got fentanyl stuff. But you know what the sad thing is? We never even knew they were addicts. They hid it from us. Right, 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 right. It's scary, right? You even know. And the, and the thing is, and the sad thing is, you know what, Dave? Addiction just isn't even in the hood anymore. It's in Beverly Hills, it's in the hood. Ain't age, age, no money enough to have anything to do with it. It happens to everybody. It can happen to anybody.
0: No, absolutely. When, when I want to take us back for a second again because, like, I kind of brushed through the fact that you got clean and sober. How hard was it for you? Like, like, how bad did it get in your alcoholism, first of all?
1: um, You know what? I just know what helped me the most, from getting away from people who would do drinkers and staying away from bars. But it was still tough because, I mean, I'll give you a good example, and this is really bad. Probably about 10 years ago or so, I went into a liquor store. I can't even go to a liquor store, just how bad it is to this day, Right? I went and started looking so like 10 years ago, right? Dave, I started smelling booze, right? And like, I smelled it and I was like, whoa, it's giving me bad like emotional recall here, bad memories right away, and I smelled it. And the thing is, like, and the sad thing is, right? Okay, when I drank, basically, I, you know, it was the 70s. You know, it was like, you go to an old man's boy, I have some shots at Jack Daniel's strength, right? But this is 10 years ago. Now you go to a liquor store, and they have, like, chocolate chocolate strawberry vodka they yeah. got advertising yeah. they're sucking kids in especially young people are sucking in i'm like i'm like wait a minute this is booze and this that they're selling it as like chocolate candy here yeah, the kids are advertising like you know hot chicks with vodka bottles in their hands I'm like you know i'm like they're manipulating people here worse than ever
0: Oh, yeah, we have... My my wife went and bought peanut butter... We have peanut butter whiskey in the (laughs) fridge downstairs. Luckily, I was never a drinker, so I don't... I'm not tempted, but I know what you mean. How about all this legal weed? There's going to be, like, fucking pot dispensaries in Manhattan in two years or something. It's going to be crazy.
1: I know. It's crazy. And then you hear, like, you know, fireball brand whiskey to taste slap. Like, no. It's It's still horrible what it does to people. But the thing is, like you said... You know, peanut butter flavor is, is a fucking manipulation here.
0: No, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, it took you five years to get sober. What was the hardest thing? Like, what? why couldn't you get it? Like, what changed when you finally did?
1: I, you know, what it is, I would, like, casually drink. I mean, I used to drink to get wasted, right? But I would casually drink, you know, like, have some, you know, like, black Russians or drinks or, like, mixed stuff. And I felt good. I was relaxed, but I didn't really get drunk that much anymore. But you know what? I was like, no, this is bad because, you know what? I'm, I'm still doing this, but at a lesser level, but it could get bad again. And like I said, when I stopped on St. Patrick's Day, I was like, okay. But then, you know, what I had to do, I got a lot of friends, like I say, especially people I told you earlier about to were basing cocaine and drinking and stuff. I had to pull away from all people like that. Right. I had to cut my friendship off from that because, and some of these people weren't even my friends. They just were drunk people I got drunk with. And they, and they were like, you know, when they would get mad at me, right, when I would drink. They were like, dude, you know what they told me? Because I was a nasty drunk, too, sometimes, right? And you know what they told me? They always oh, love you when you're nasty drunk because you tell the truth and you know, pull low punches. And you're such a shy, timid guy when you're not drinking, but when you, you know, become drunk, you're Mr. Hyde. And they said, Mr. Hyde just lost fun. How stupid is that? With
0: well, that? That's, <laughs> that's classic, right? And that's the classic alcoholic and addict fear is they're not going to be themselves. Once they get sober, they're not going to be cool. They're not going to be funny. But was it the opposite, Mike? Like when you're on the comedy scene and, and somebody like Artie uh, who's using and drinking or or in comedy clubs, you need. I mean, like drinking is part of the culture. Using Coke is part of the culture. Was it difficult to be sober in the scene?
1: Um, You know, what? it was kind of weird because. When, when people would go out afterwards, I, you know what I basically do? I used to, like, when I was drinking, I'd hang, hang out with these people all night, you know, go to diners, just chill, maybe drink a little bit, whatever. But you know what happened? After, you know, I got sober, I just wanted to do my spot and go home.
0: Okay. Um, and it's so. Just like a right. So, like, you just, that. I mean, like, that's a great technique, though. You know, did you feel did you feel bad like you were missing out? Or were you like, I did my spot, I did well, and I'm I'm ready to go home, or did you feel sad that you couldn't hang out? Was it a did you feel well, the sadness was, over that?
1: It was a mixed year. It was kinda of sad and kinda of happy in a way, because like I was happy I was salty, but I was sad, but you know what it is too? Because part of me was thinking because, you know, like you just said, a lot of comics and actors, you know, and stuff, you know, they drink and they party up and they get high and, you know, and that's how they become close friends and everything, right? And the thing is, I never hung out with them like that. And I was thinking, wait a minute, they're all hanging out. And then all of a sudden people help people in this business, you know, because they were in that circle and they're drinking and partying and everything. i like, you know what? I felt like maybe it would have helped me more career wise, but it would have hurt me at the end of the day.
0: Oh yeah, you wouldn't have been able to. You wouldn't have been able to have a life. You would have had no career. Maybe you would have had a little bit of a jump, but you. I mean, that's what it does. Is it? It, it takes away your choices. I mean, look at look. I mean, that's what happened with Artie. He he had everything oh, yeah. he ever could have wanted uh, except sobriety, and he lost everything he ever didn't have. You know what I mean? It's like
1: uh, you know who's a great guest on podcast on uh, Happily House, and I make sure I didn't blog him too much about it. Uh, Chris Fawley's brother, yeah, Kevin is. A, he was on there, right? And you know, it's funny because Audie was running late that day, and Kevin Fawley was on there. And I candidly really talked to Kevin before Audie got there, and I said, "Look, Kevin, uh, you know we're going to interview you today." And I said, "Look, I thought your brother was an icon. He's a brilliant genius, right? And I know I'm talking myself for years." And so I said, "Brother," and I go, "Look, if you don't, you know." If you don't want to talk about him, I don't want to make this a crybaby fest. That's what I tell him to talk about him and, and say, you know, and all kinds of stuff. And he goes, no, no. He goes, I appreciate you telling me that. How much you love Chris and, and you know, and that, you know, that you didn't want to, you know, bring any bad memories out. He goes, no, no, it's perfectly fine to talk about it because I think it helps when I talk about it. That's what he said. He was really a cool guy. And the scary thing is, Dave, he looks so much like Chris.
0: Right. Right, I re- I remember that I remember that interview well. I listened to all your episodes, but I remember that uh, he really carried a-, a great recovery message. Mike, I know you don't have that much time, and it was just so awesome to have you on the show. It was an honor. And listen, can you do me a favor?
1: Can we stay in touch via phone and email? I like having new friends.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm always available. Whatever you need.
1: Thank you, Dave. And I I can't wait to hear this. And I'm in some great company with all the people you have here. I appreciate it. It's going to be fun. All right,
0: Mike. Thank you, man. Have a great day, okay? I will. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate
1: it. Have a great day. It was so much fun. I can't wait. Let me know when this comes out. I'll let people know. All right. Thank you. Thanks,
0: Mike. I got you. Bye. So, again, that's the great Mike Bochetti. Uh, Love having him on the show. Uh, Sweetest guy. You know, I had a feeling he was going to be the way he was, but he was even somehow kinder. More down to earth, a great touchstone for New York City and old school alcoholism, and he got sober without a program, which is amazing. And he didn't like it when Artie was nasty to him on a uh, halfway house, which I also found fascinating. As we inch closer back to the world of Artie Lang, who knows if we'll get there? Mike puschetti was a was a joy. Um, I want to play a voicemail. I got this. There's a guy named William. I don't know if he wants me to say his last name. He probably does because he wrote a book. His name is William Billy Manus. He's an author. He's a guitar player. He's a storyteller. He sent me a book that I haven't read yet. He did an amazing version of Good So Bad that I haven't played yet. And he, he did a dopey voicemail, which I'm going to play for you right now. Here he is, Billy Manis.
2: Dave, Dopey Nation, this is Billy Manis. I have a dopey story for you. I don't even know if it's funny, but it's definitely a dopey story. Um, I was using so much opiates at one point that I totally lost track of the fact that I hadn't been using the restroom, shall we say, uh, very often at all. As a matter of fact, I was really skinny. So I was like 125 pounds. But my stomach got really distended. Have have you ever seen like a snake after it eats like a mouse? (laughs) That's what I kind of looked like. So um, I I went to the doctor because I I was like, I looked really weird. I felt horrible. No matter how much I used, I felt horrible. You know, just I couldn't hardly move at that point. So I go to the the doctor, and he's like, "You got to go to the hospital and get a colonoscopy. We got to figure out what's going on here." So I do it because I normally I wouldn't do it, but I felt so bad. I, I, I was I would just do anything they told me. So I woke up from the colonoscopy, and and the doctor comes over to me, and he, in the most nonchalant way, he's like. Oh, that colon's got to come out. And it didn't register because I I think I was just too much in shock. I was like, what do you mean it has to come out? And the nurse standing next to him came over to me and, and rubbed my shoulder. And she goes, he's going to take out your large intestine and you're going to have what's known as an ostomy. And you're going to be pooping into a bag and, well, anyway, long story short, I was, like, ready to, to off myself at that point. I was starting to, like, figure out. I was laying there waiting for the surgery all night, figuring out how I was going to get out of there when it was over and jump off something really high and just... And, there was no way I was going to live like that. No way. So, you know, I mean, my dating life would have been right out the window. So I... uh I, I, I wake up in intensive care after the surgery and I'm like feeling around for this, you know, life-altering thing and I don't feel anything. I mean, I feel bandages, but I don't feel any bag or anything. And so the intensive care nurse is there and I'm like out of it. I mean, I'm in intensive care. I'm like out of it. And I, and I said something about the bag and she goes, I think you're confused. There's no bag so I didn't know what was going on, uh, but I I just remember feeling an extraordinary feeling of relief and and passing back out again. Anyway, I came to find out the next day that I had this really talented surgeon that came over from Italy, very young guy, who figured out how to do uh, a resection and keep me intact. So, I mean, you have to understand, like... I missed my entire life changing for a really bad by, like, millimeters. I You know, if, God forbid, any other surgeon would have been given that job, you know, I things would never have been the same. Long story short, they sent me home four days later with, like, you know, a little bottle of Percocet. But meanwhile, I had a raging habit, you know. Um, and I at least, you know, needed methadone because I, you know, the the Percocet wasn't going to, uh, it just wasn't going to do it for me. So there I am, right? I just missed getting my entire large intestine taken out, and there I am with metal staples in my abdomen, <laughs> trying to drive this car which would not idle, so I had to, like, have one foot on the brake, one foot on the gas. I I drove it, like, the equivalent of, like, an hour away to get 110 milligrams of methadone with, like, staples in me. Like, you know, I mean, I wasn't supposed to be anywhere near a car. And what's even worse about all of that is that I had one chance you know, I I came so close because of dope to losing my entire intestine. <laughs> and instead of instead of you know praising doctors from Europe and living a better life, there I was days later driving with staples to get more methadone. So this uh, this disease is no joke, man. But uh, thanks very much. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and tools for Chris.
0: Classic Dope Fiend voicemail. You lose your guts. You lose your intestines. You get surgery, and all you want to do is get more heroin, even though it was the heroin or the methadone that caused the problem in the first place. It also makes me nervous about needing a colonoscopy and, and like, what if my large intestines are on the way out, and I don't have any idea about it. I don't know. Makes me very, very, very nervous. But uh, thank you, Billy. I swear I will open that book hopefully soon. It's on a st- I, I'm reading all of this addiction stuff to serve the greater dopey good. So Billy's on the list. We're going to read your book, or I'm going to read your book very soon. So as you guys know, I live on eastern Long Island, and tonight we are hunkering down for a snowstorm. They canceled Nora's school for tomorrow. We're supposed to get... Like, Long Island's supposed to get a couple feet. I think we're going to get, like, a foot. I bet you we we might not get anything, and it just started to snow. And I love when it snows to reflect upon past snowstorms in dopey land or, or like, drug stories around snowstorms. And I don't think I ever told this story. And uh, I was very young, and I was in college, and I, I hadn't started using hard drugs yet. And in New York, in the Northeast, probably in 1996, there was a winter storm called the Storm of the Century. And it was a big storm, you know. And I lived in a house with uh, DK, who's been on Dopey, and Zev, who's also been on Dopey. And we lived in the upstairs of an uh, Italian home in Port Chester, New York. And upstairs... Uh, We had a three-bedroom place. We had an attic. It was a very nice uh, apartment. And the storm of the century came and feet of snow were piling up. And uh, we had company and we went through our bud really quickly. And the three of us were like ridiculous stoners. And I remember the snow on the roof uh, out of our window was so thick that DK and this other guy, John, kept – their 40s they had just like 20 40s and they didn't put them in the fridge they put them in the snow right outside of the window and uh none of our weed connections had any weed and um and we were going to be trapped for days and the snow was just really starting to pile up and we didn't have a connect and um we were young you know and i didn't know i didn't know where to go really I I didn't think to go to Manhattan for some reason. I figured that would be ridiculous, even though that's probably what we should have done. But we might have gotten snowed in. So what I decided to do was – it was my strategy for getting anything done, which is find some random stoners and ask about weed. But it was like a winter storm, so I didn't know what to do. But then it occurred to me that at the local Blockbuster, it was just only stoners worked there. So me and DK drove to the local Blockbuster, and that's, that dates me. But we went to the local Blockbuster, and the kid behind the counter wasn't a stoner, it turned out. But a kid online was, and he said, uh, I don't know where to go around here, but I'm from New Rochelle, and I know this project that always has Bud, just go down there. And there, there, it was like nobody even had cell phones then. I don't know. None of them had beepers. They gave us an address and, um, and it was getting late. It was probably like 5 or 6 in the afternoon. So by the time we were driving down there, it was dark. And the snow was so heavy that driving to New Rochelle – from Porchester. It was like going into hyperspace in Star Wars, the way the snow was coming out the window. And we, we drove... Dave is an amazing driver. DK uh, was just an amazing driver. And And the roads are covered with snow, and he's just plowing, plowing, plowing to get there. We just had an address. Like, there was no GPS. There was no cell phone. There was no beeper. We had an address for a project in New Rochelle. And the instructions we were just to bang on the door downstairs. Um, and it took us a little while to find the place. And by the time we got there, the blizzard was in full effect. And I think we, we might have had like $100 between all of us. So we like put all of our money together and we were like, fuck it. Let's just get as much butt as we can so we could stay high during this thing. So we go to this project. We bang on the door Nobody's there, and I'm just like, are you – I mean, like, honestly, why would anyone be there? It's the storm of the century. We don't belong there. We don't know anybody. And the next thing we knew, some kid was going into the building, and he's like, oh, you looking for this guy? And I was like, yeah. He had butt in his pocket. I gave him the 100 He, I think he gave me two quarters, um, so a half ounce for a 100 bucks. We drove back slowly. It was super – swaggy bud it was the schwack as we like to call it or it was really like mid-grade bud but it was swaggy compared to the other bud we were smoking and uh and we managed to stay high during the storm of the century and and i think whenever there's a snowstorm i think back on uh on drug stories of uh of winter's past and that's just a classic innocent stoner's tale Now that leads me to the next request, which is like, if you guys have good winter copping dopey stories, please send one to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. We need more stories. We need more voicemails. We need more emails. And I'm going to read one more email before we go, before this bonus episode is over. Here we go. This was my freshman year of college. Let's see who it's from. I don't even know who it's from. It's from a guy named Sam, but not producer Sam, a different guy named Sam. He says, this was my freshman year of college. I had already worked my way through a bottle of MD 2020, which is Mad Dog 2020, and had started on a pint of something else. My roommate and I were in a car with three other people on the way to see an Of Montreal concert in Denver. One of the other kids in the car was from Turkey and I recall talking to her about the Kurds, something I probably had read a Vice article on and considered myself to be a bit of an authority on. I vaguely remember making it into the room, but my next concrete memory is of waking up in a 6x10 tile room and realizing I didn't have any of my shit. I was missing my belt, too, and couldn't keep my pants up. The drain on the floor read urinal. The, there was a window that gave me a narrow view from which I could see a few other doors with windows like my own. I didn't know where I was or why I was there. So I started yelling as loud as I could to be let out. I heard someone yell back, shut up, you American piece of shit. In an accent I heard as Middle Eastern. I guess because this happened in 2014, my next thought was that I had been detained by ISIS. But that seemed too outlandish. Plus, my cell was clean, and I felt okay. So I concluded... I was in a Turkish prison. I started screaming that I was an American citizen demanding to see the ambassador. Others in neighborhood cells, uh, neighboring cells, starting to join in. Yes, we are Americans. I don't know about you guys, but we have rights in our country. Eventually, someone came by with a cup of water and let me know that if I was quiet for an hour, they'd let me out. Fucking shit, I thought. You could have let me know that to begin with. So I shut up And an hour later, they let me into the general ward of Denver Detox. When they did my outtake, they told me that I had been put into isolation because when I got there, I made a dash for it and tried to hide. They gave me my my possessions, which consisted of my belt, hat, and a dead phone. I had lost my wallet, so I couldn't pay the $150 fine. So I eventually had to shell out $300 for my stay. They let me charge my phone so I could call someone. The only person I knew in Denver was my old camp counselor who I was supposed to meet at the concert the night before. He gave me his address and I made my way over. I remember sweating out a lot of alcohol and a long walk to his place and that he quickly got me sorted out with a few bowls, some powdered benzo research chemicals, and jamba juice. I had missed class that day, but the following day he promised to cart me the hour south back to my college. I puked on his couch that night, a a slight I eventually repaid him for with a half a dozen Xanax. For about a week, the events that led to my admission to Denver Detox remained a mystery, except for the fact that I had purchased 10 more dollars of something from a liquor store near the venue. But I decided to check my email and saw that a woman from Denver had contacted me, She let me know that they had discovered me passed out on her porch wearing one of her husband's slippers. They had cared for me until the paramedics and police had arrived. My last name is also a common first name, so the police had been unable to identify who I was, and I kept giving them my East Coast address. I should have been mortified by the email this woman sent, which came entirely from a place of care and concern, but my main takeaway was that I was graced that I was graced by God Had avoided arrest And probably could have lied to the detox people About who I was too And avoided a bill The lady mailed me back my wallet And I continued to drink myself into a state of confusion On a pretty regular basis I recall an incident that following summer Where I asked the girl I was seeing at the time Mid-sex Do you think my girlfriend would be mad about this? But that didn't seem to phase me much either I hope this story makes the dopey cut I have been loving all the new stuff. Also, I'm still in the market for an OV hat. If you still have some, please let me know, Sam. Uh, thank you, Sam. That's a crazy story. That's a crazy story. It's a little bit hard to follow, but uh, I like it. And yes, we have Oivey hats. If you want an OV hat, uh, hit me up at uh, dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I think they're like 30 bucks with shipping. Anyway, that's our bonus episode. I didn't Welch. That's what people in recovery do. They do something, they say they're gonna do something and they do it. I, I fucking whenever I go to the grocery store, I always like I'll put the the box of the case of seltzer under the the shopping cart and I get to the checkout and every time I know that I could go through the checkout without paying for the seltzer. But every time I smile to myself and I know, you know as corny as it sounds that's part of my recovery to make sure that they charge me for it to make sure that I'm not stealing anything i used to go to the grocery store and stealing was like it was just like sometimes i had to steal or or like but i always loved it i always loved getting away with it and now it's the opposite this is part of my routine for uh you know keeping my word and the bonus episode on january 31st close to midnight is me keeping my word that 10 dollar patrons get their fucking fifth episode uh, 30 days before everybody else. Thank you guys. Fucking Happy Dopey. Thank you Mike Paschatti. Thank you Sam. Thank you Billy Manis. Thank you Dopey Nation. You guys know who you are. Everybody that helps out, I cannot tell you how much I I love your participation. It's what keeps Dopey happy, joyous and free. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris.